Chapter 10 of Railstone Luck by Andre Norton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Into the Swamp. In spite of the fact that they received but lukewarm encouragement from charity, both Holmes and Creighton lingered on in New Orleans. Mr. Creighton made several attempts to get in touch with Jeems, whom he seemed to suspect of concealing vast literary treasures and he spent one hot morning going through the trunk of papers which the railstones had found in the storage room. Ricky commented upon the fact that being a publisher's scout was almost like being an antique buyer. Holmes was a perfect foil for his laboring friend. He lounged away his days draped across a settee on Charity's gallery, or sitting down on the bayou levee after she had chased him away, pitching pebbles into the water. He told all of them that it was his vacation, the first one he had had in five years, and that he was going to make the most of it. Companioned by Creighton, he usually enlarged the family circle in the evenings, and the tales he could tell about the far corners of the earth were as wildly romantic as Rupert's, though he did assure his listeners that even Tibet was very tame and well-behaved nowadays. Charity had finished the first illustration and had started another. This time, Ricky and Val appeared polished and combed, as if they had just stepped out of a ballroom of a governor's palace, which they had, according to this story. It was during her second morning's work upon this that she threw down her brush with a snort of disgust. It's no use, she told her models. I simply can't work on this now. All I can see is that scene where the hero's mulatto half-brother watches the ball from the underbrush. I've got to do that one first. Why don't you, then? Ricky stretched to relieve cramped muscles. I would if I could get Jeems. He's my model for the brother. He's enough like you, Val, for the resemblance, and his darker tan is just right for color. But he won't come back while Creighton's here. I could wring that man's neck. But Creighton left for Milnberg this morning, Val reminded her. Rupert told him about the old voodoo rites which used to be celebrated there on June 24th, St. John's Eve, and he wanted to see if there were any records. Yes, but Jeems doesn't know he's gone. If he could only get in touch with him. Jeems, I mean. Miss Janda. Sam, too, as they had come to call Sam's eldest son and heir, was standing on the lower step of the terrace, holding a small covered basket in his hands. Yes. Letty Lou done say this am for you all, Miss Janda. For me? Ricky looked at the offering in surprise. But what in the world? Bring it here, Sam. Yes, ma'am. He laid the basket in Ricky's outstretched hands. I've never seen anything like this before. She turned it around. It seems to be woven of some awfully fine grass. That swamp work. Charity was peering over Ricky's shoulder. Open it. Inside, on a nest of raw, wild cotton, lay a bracelet of polished wood carved with an odd design of curling lines which reminded Val of Spanish moss and with the circlet was a small purse of scaled hide. Swamp, oak, and baby alligator burst out charity. Aren't they beauties? But who? began Ricky. Val picked up a scrap of paper which had fluttered to the floor. It was cheap stuff, ruled with faint blue lines, but the writing was bold and clear. Miss Richanda Railstone. It's yours, all right. He handed her the paper. I know. She tucked the note away with the gifts. It was Jeems. Jeems? But why? her brother protested. 
Well, yesterday, when I was down by the levee, he was coming in, and I knew that Mr. Creighton was here, and I told him so. She colored faintly. Then he took me across the bayou, and I got some of those big swamp lilies that I've always wanted. And we had a long talk, Well, Jeems knows the most wonderful things about the swamps. Do you know that they still have voodoo meetings sometimes, way back in there? She swept her hand southward. And the fur trappers live on houseboats, renting their hunting rights. But Jeems owns his own land. Now some northerners are prospecting for oil. They have a queer sort of car which can travel either on land or water. And Père Armand has church records that date back to the middle of the 18th century and... So that's where you were from four until almost six, Val laughed. I don't know that I approve of this riotous living. Will Jeems take me to pick the lilies too? Maybe. He wanted to know why you always moved so carefully and I told him about the accident. Then he said the oddest thing. She was staring past Val at the oaks. He said that to fly was worth being smashed up for and that he envied you. Then he's a fool, her brother said promptly. Nothing is worth. Val stopped abruptly. Five months before, he had made a bargain with himself. He was not going to break it now. Do you know, Ricky said to Charity, if you really need Jeems this morning, I think I can get him for you. He told me yesterday how to find his cabin. But why? The objection came almost at once from Charity. Val thought she was more than a little surprised that Jeems, who had steadfastly refused to give her the same information, had supplied it so readily to Ricky, whom he hardly knew at all. I don't know, answered Ricky frankly. He was rather queer about it, kept saying that the time might come when I would need help and things like that. Charity? Val was putting her brushes straight. I learned long ago that nothing can be kept from Ricky. Sooner or later, one spills out his secrets. Except Rupert. Ricky aired her old grievance. Perhaps Rupert, her brother agreed. Anyway, I do know where Jeems lives. Do you want me to get him for you, Charity? Certainly not, child. Do you think that I'd let you go into the swamp? Why, even men who know something of woodcraft think twice before attempting such a trip without a guide. Of course you're not going, I think. She put her paint-stained hand to her head. That I'm going to have one of my sick headaches. I'll have to go home and lie down for an hour or two. I'm sorry. Ricky's sympathy was quick and warm. Is there anything I can do? Charity shook her head with a rueful smile. Time is the only medicine for one of these. I'll see you later. Just the same, Ricky stood looking after her. I'd like to know just what is going on in the swamp right now. Why? Val asked lightly. Because, well, just because, was her provoking answer. Jeems was so odd yesterday. He talked as if, as if there was some threat to us or him. I wonder if there's something wrong, she frowned. Of course not, her brother made prompt answer. He's merely gone off on one of those mysterious trips of his. Just the same, what if there was something wrong? We might go and see. Nonsense, Val snapped. You heard what Charity said about going into the swamp alone? And there's nothing to worry about anyway. Come on, let's change, and then I have something to show you. What? she demanded. Wait and see. His ruse had succeeded. She was no longer looking swampward with that gleam of purpose in her eye. Come on, then, she said, prodding him into action. Val changed slowly. If one didn't care about mucking around in the garden as Ricky seemed to delight in doing, there was so little in the way of occupation. He thought of the days as they spread before him a little riding, a great amount of casual reading, and what else? 
Was the South getting him as the tropics are supposed to get the Northerners? That unlucky meeting with a mountain top had effectively despoiled him of his one ambition. Soldiers with game legs are not wanted. He couldn't paint like Charity. He couldn't spin yarns like Rupert. He possessed a mind too inaccurate to cope with the intricacies of any science. And as a businessman, he would probably be a good street cleaner. What was left? Well, the surprise he had promised Ricky might cover the problem. As he reached for a certain black notebook, someone knocked on his door. Mr. Val, where's Miss Chanda? She ain't up here and I wants to... Lucy stood in the hall. The light from the round window was reflected from every corrugated wave of her painfully marcelled hair. Her vast flowered dress had been thriftily covered with a dull grin bib apron, and she had changed her smart slippers for the shapeless grey relics she wore indoors. Just now she looked warm and tired. After all, running two households was something of a task even for Lucy. Why she should be in her room? We came up to change. Miss Charity's gone home with a headache. What was it you wanted her for? These here curtains, Mr. Val. She thrust a mound of snowy and be-ruffled white stuff at him. Day has got to be hung, and does Miss Chenda want them in her room, or does she not? Better put them up. I'll tell her about it. Here, wait, let me open that door. Val looked into Ricky's room. As usual, it appeared as though a whirlwind, a small whirlwind, but a thorough one, had passed through it. Her discarded costume lay tumbled across the bed, and her slippers lay on the floor, one upside down. He stooped to set them straight. It do beat all, Lucy said frankly, as she put her burden down on a chair. How that child do make a mess. Now you, Mr. Val, just put everything just so. But Miss Chanda leave everything which way afore Sunday. Look at that now. She pointed to the half-open door of the closet. A slip lay on the floor. Ricky must have been in a hurry. That was a little too untidy, even for her. A sudden suspicion sent Val into the closet to investigate. Ricky's wardrobe was not so extensive that he did not know every dress and article in it very well. It did not take him more than a moment to see what was missing. Did Ricky go riding? Val asked. Her habit is gone. She ain't gone cross the bayou for the horse, answered Lucy, reaching for the curtain rod. And anyway, Sam Dunn took that critter down the road for to be shooed. Then where? But Val knew his Ricky only too well. She had a certain stubborn will of her own. Sometimes opposition merely drove her into doing the forbidden thing, and the swamp had been forbidden. But could even Ricky be such a fool? Certain memories of the past testified that she could. But how? Unless she had taken Sam's boat. Without a word of explanation to Lucy, he dashed out of the room and downstairs at his best pace. As he left the house, Val broke into a stumbling run. There was just a chance that she had not yet left the plantation. But the bayou levee was deserted, and the post where Sam's boat was usually moored was bare of rope. The boat was gone. Of course, Sam too might have taken it across the stream to the farm. That hope was extinguished as a small brown boy came out of the bushes along the stream side. Sam, have you seen Miss Chanda? Val demanded. Yes, sir. Where? Carrying on a conversation with Sam, too, was like prying diamonds out of a rock. He possessed a rooted distaste for talking. Here, sir. When? Just a little bitty go. Where did she go? Sam pointed downstream. Did she take the boat? Yes, sir. 
And then for the first time since Val had known him, Sam volunteered a piece of information. She done say she a going in de swamp. Val leaned back against the hole of one of the willows. Then she had done it. And what could he do? If he had any idea of a path, he could follow her while Sam aroused Rupert and the house. If I only knew where, he mused aloud. She a going to see that swamp of Jeems, Sam continued. <laughs> a sudden cackle of laughter rippled across his lips. That old swamper think he's so smart. Think no one find the house. Sam? Val rounded upon him. Do you know where Jeems lives? Yes, sir. He twisted the one shoulder strap of his overalls, and Val guessed that his knowledge was something he was either ashamed of or afraid to tell. Can you take me there? He shook his head. I ain't a going in there. I ain't. But Sam, you've got to. Miss Chanda is in there. She may be lost. We've got to find her, Val insisted. Sam's thin shoulders shook, and he slid backward, as if to avoid the white boy's reach. I ain't a-going in dare, he repeated stubbornly. Effin' you all wants to go in dare. Looky, Mr. Val, I tells you all the way, and you all goes. He brightened at this solution. You all can take Pappy's other boat. It aim downstream there, behind them willows. Then you all goes down to the second big pile of willows. Behind them is a little bitty bayou going back. You all goes up there till you all comes to a fur rack. Then that James got the way marked on the trees. With that, he turned and ran as if all the terrors of the night were on his trail. There was nothing for Val to do but follow his directions. And the longer he lingered before setting out, the bigger lead Ricky was getting. He found the canoe behind the willows, as Sam had said. Awkwardly, he pushed off, hoping that Lucy would pry the whole story out of her son and put Rupert on their track as soon as possible. The second clump of willows was something of a landmark, a huge matted mass of sucker and branch, the lower tips of the long, frond-like twigs sweeping the murky water. A snake, swimming with its head just above the surface, wriggled to the bank as Val cut into the small hidden stream Sam had told him of. Vines and water plants had almost choked this, but there was a passage through the center, and one tough spike of vegetation which snapped back into his face bore a deep cut from which the sap was still oozing. The small stinging flies and mosquitoes followed and hung over him like a fog of discomfort. His skin was swollen and rough, irritated and itching, and in this green-covered way the heat seemed almost solid. Drops of moisture dripped from forehead and chin, and his hair was plastered tight to his skull. Frogs leaped from the bank into the water at the sound of his coming. In the shallows near the bank, crawfish scuttled under waterlogged leaves and stones at this disturbance of their world. Twice the bayou widened out into a sort of pool where the trees grew out of the muddy water, and all sorts of lilies and bulb plants blossomed in riotous confusion. Once, a muskrat waddled into the protection of the bushes, and Val saw something like a small cat drinking at a pool. But that faint shadow disappeared noiselessly, almost before the water trickled from his upraised paddle. Clumps of wild rice were the meeting grounds for flocks of screaming birds. A snow-white egret waded solemnly across a mud-rimmed pocket. And once a snake more dangerous than the swimmer Val had first encountered, betrayed its presence by the flicker of its tongue. The smell of the steaming mud, the decaying vegetation, and the nameless evils hidden deeper in this water-rotted land was an added torment. 
the boy shook a large red ant from its grip in the flesh of his hand and wiped the streaming perspiration from his face. It was then that the canoe floated, almost of its own volition, into a dead and distorted strip of country. Black water which gave off an evil odour covered almost half an acre of ground. From this arose the twisted, gaunt grey skeletons of dead oaks. To complete the drear picture, a row of rusty black vultures sat along the broad naked limb of the nearest of these hulks, their red raw heads upraised as they croaked and sidled up and down. But the bayou Val was following merely skirted this region, and in a few moments he was again within the shelter of flower-grown banks. Then he came upon a structure which must have been the fur rack Sam too had alluded to, for here was their other boat, moored to a convenient willow. Val fastened the canoe beside it. The turf seemed springy, though here and there it gave way to patches of dark mud. It was on one of these that Ricky had left her mark in the clean-cut outline of the sole of her riding boot. With a last desperate slap at a mosquito, Val headed inland following with ease that trail of footprints. Ricky was suffering too for her rashness, he noted with satisfaction, when he discovered a long curly hair fast in the grip of a thorny branch he scraped under. But the path was not a bad one, and the farther he went the more solid and drier it became. Once he passed through a small clearing, man-made, where three or four cotton bushes huddled together forlornly in company with a luxuriant melon patch and the melon patch was separated by only a few feet of underbrush from Jeems' domain. In the middle of a clearing was a sturdy platform, reinforced with upright posts and standing about four feet from the surface of the ground. On this was a small cabin constructed of slabs of bark-covered wood. As a dwelling it might be crude, but it had an air of scrupulous neatness. A short distance to one side of the platform was a well-built chicken run, now inhabited by five hens and a ragged-tailed cock. The door of the cabin was shut, and there were no signs of life save the chickens. But as Val lowered himself painfully onto the second step of the ladder-like stairs leading up to the cabin, he thought he heard someone moving about. Glancing up, he saw Ricky staring down at him, open-mouthed. Hello, she called, for one of the few times in her life really astounded. Hello, Val answered shortly, and shifted his weight to try to relieve the ache in his knee. Nice day, isn't it? End of chapter 10 Recording by Gabriel Glenn